take a second, take five seconds to look at the picture on that screen, right? Five, three, one. All right. I'll quit whispering. I hear you whispering. Stop. All right. Show of hands. Did you see a wolf? All right. Or are you raising your hand because I'm suggesting you should have seen a, a wolf? <laughs> there you go. Okay. Yes, there is, a, there is a wolf. Now, I had seen this slide for a number of weeks, and it wasn't until I actually inserted the slide into my PowerPoint that it's like, hey, what's that? There's a wolf in this picture, right? So false teachers, right? They're skilled in their ability to look like what they're not and to not look like what they are. And we're going to be looking at a whole chapter today related to false teachers. And the thing about false teachers, you know, they don't advertise that they're false. We have to be out on the lookout for them, as we will see today. Now, we've got a bit of a challenge ahead of us, a bit of a self-inflicted challenge, right? We needed to shorten our study of Second Peter to fit the new format. We're going to three services. Everything's kind of starting new on the third. Well, that's when we were going to end. And so they said, you know, find a way to shorten it. And I looked at Second Peter and glanced at it because it was, you know, it, it was broken into two. And I thought, yeah, I can do all that in one. And then it's like, what have I done? Um, so, but Jeff gave great advice. He says, Rod, just climb in altitude until, until you reach the height that fits the length of the passage. And so we will. We're climbing up a little bit, right? We're on a kind of a helicopter tour of, of Second Peter chapter 2. And with any tour, you've got to kind of decide what you're going to look at. Uh, what landmarks to point out. So with the plan in place, let's start by seeing where we have been thus far in Second Peter. And we'll, I want to talk about chapter 1. The general theme of chapter 1 is the growth in Christian virtue. And we saw the need for a constant focus on truth. Second Peter 1.10 says, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. And in particular, last time we were together, Corbett turned our attention to focus on the trustworthiness of the word, of the truth. And this focus comes, as Peter describes, on being reminded of the truth. Second Peter 1.12 says, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them, and have been established in the truth which is present with you. I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up. How? By way of reminder. We also focus on the fact that the truth we've been taught is trustworthy. Why do we know this? Well, God spoke it to the apostles. That's chapter 1, verse 16 through 18. God spoke through the Old Testament prophets. It's chapter 1, 19 through 22. In short, Peter is saying, be certain of your calling and be certain you know the truth. Why? Because for certain, false teachers will come peddling their own version of truth. 
And so we're going to segue from that, from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Let's, let's get a running start, right? We're going to kind of hurdle the chapter break to keep the flow and context together. So we're going to uh, start with 2 Peter 1, verse 19. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. Let's stop right there. All right. Grab your prophetic word. Point to it. Yes, we have the prophetic word. We have it and it's made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns in and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one owns interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So yes, with one foot squarely in chapter 1, being sure of our calling, be sure we know the truth. Why? Because there's another certainty. False teachers will come and will offer false assurance. Now this lesson isn't a, really a warm, fuzzy one. I wish I had a warm, fuzzy one, but it is a critical one because it goes from eternal joy in chapter one to eternal misery in chapter two, and the chapter contains several horrifying descriptions. Verse one, but false prophets bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Verse three, their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is is not asleep. Verse 12, but these will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. And 17, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Now with these anchors of horror in mind, let's continue to read about the false teachers. We'll pick it up in chapter 2, verse 4, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority." daring, self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. 
But these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way. They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he received a rebuke for his own transgressions. For a mute donkey, speaking with a voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. Verse 17. These are springs without water, mists driven by a storm, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow, after washing, returns to wallow in the mire. One thing to notice in chapter 2, and you probably picked up on it as it read, is that it's completely devoid of any commands, any admonitions, any imperatives. It doesn't have to. The warnings are too clear. We're going to look at the certainty of false teachers. Verse 1 says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you. Jesus referred to this, Matthew 24, 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show you great signs and wonders, so to mislead if possible, even the elect. False teachers among you who will do what? Secretly introduce destructive heresies. It's no secret they will slip in in secret. But the problem with secrets is that they are secret. You don't know until you know. And Peter is warning his readers and us to know. You know, pulpits and lecterns are popular places for false teachers. It's part of Satan's plans. For instance, I enjoy coffee. I enjoy going out with coffee one-on-one. -on -one. If I was a false teacher, I would have a one-on-one -on -one opportunity to influence. Now put me in a room this size behind a lectern. If I'm a false teacher, I have an opportunity to influence the whole group. You can see why false teachers and pulpits is a great marketing plan for Satan. But by doing so, the false teachers are doing this. They're even denying the master 
who bought them. Now, this is not denying the master as Savior, though they are denying Christ. It's denying a master as one over a household or an estate. As MacArthur writes, Thus for Peter, the supreme sacrilege of false teachers is that they deny the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ. Granted, they may not outwardly deny Christ's deity, atonement, resurrection, or second coming, but internally they adamantly refuse to submit their lives to a sovereign rule. As a result, their immoral and rebellious lifestyles will inevitably give them away. And they'll give them, be given away as one who never knew Christ. Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Now Peter gives us the characteristics of these false teachers. Sensuality and greed. Verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Sensuality and greed. Two characteristics of these false teachers. Likely promoting sensuality in the name of Christian liberty. And they exploit their audience. This word exploit comes from uh, the business dealings of engaging in business. To them, it is a business. Paul in 2 Corinthians 2.17, talking about the preaching of the word, he says, for we are not like many peddling the word of God. They are peddlers. They are in business of dealing in falsehood. We'll see in verse 14, that they are trained in greed. And having been trained, they are experts in greed. It seems that perhaps some teachers were charging to have select students, right, who would listen to their version of the truth. And perhaps referring to this distortions of the writing of Paul, Peter in chapter 3, as we'll see, says this in verse 15, just as also our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, and also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. We also see that the false teachers are confident and arrogant. You know, I often have trouble giving evil people enough credit for their evil. I tend to look on the good of people and assuming there's more good. And it's hard for me to think that people are as evil as they are. But Peter helps us. Because verses 10 through 16 are particularly graphic and descriptive, giving us no doubt of the evil of these false teachers. In 10b, we see that they are daring. They are self-willed. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. We could call these the audacious ones. 
Now, daring can be a good thing, right? A courageous thing. It can be a noble thing. But to be daring in that which is evil, that which is shameless, spiting what is decent and good, we see that they are self-willed, acting to please only themselves. Perhaps it's such men as these that Paul had in mind to be excluded as he talked about the requirements to be an elder. Titus 1.7 For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. Verse 12, but these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. Animals are reactors more than thinkers. Wolves, for instance, howl at the moon, but they don't appreciate or understand what it is exactly that they are seeing like animals, the false teachers act out of desires and feelings instead of reason. And the fate of animals is to be captured and killed. For there is always something bigger than you that wants to eat you. Wild animals, as a rule, lead violent lives. And as unreasoning animals are destined for destruction, the false teachers also but this is the destruction of God's judgment. MacArthur Study Bible says, The false teachers have no sensitivity to the power and presence of demons or holy angels, but like wild animals, insubordinate, insolent, and arrogant, they charge into the supernatural realm, cursing away at persons and matters they don't understand, and they will utterly perish. Since they live like beasts who are made to be caught and destroyed, the false teachers will be killed like beasts. False teachers cannot get beyond their own instincts and thus will be destroyed by the folly of those passions. And this destruction is just. 13. Suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. As the false teachers have engaged in the business of doing wrong with false words, they have earned the just pay of receiving the harm of destruction for themselves. Other characteristics that Paul points out, or Peter points out, carnality and sensuality. Yeah, sensuality again. It's a common theme throughout this, this chapter. Verse 13, they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. I call this, they don't even know how to blush. Douglas Moo says, in Peter's day, as in ours, indulgence of sinful pleasure usually took place under cover of darkness. Practicing such hedonistic activities in broad daylight is therefore a sign that the false teachers are completely shameless about their indulgence. It says they are stains and blemishes. Now these are very broad descriptions. I mean, we can get a sense of what is intended by looking at the antonyms. Peter's in 
we can look at 1 Peter 3.14 where Peter is encouraging the readers to look forward to the return of Christ. 2 Peter 3.14 Therefore, beloved, since you look at these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. In the Greek, those words are exact opposites of stains and blemishes. Instead of being spotless and blameless, they are stained and blemished. They're spotted with sin and have much for which to be blamed. They are anything but spotless, anything but blameless. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. Regarding this adultery, Mu writes, eyes full of adulterous women. By this, Peter means that the false teachers are so addicted to sex that they look at every woman as a potential partner in their lust. MacArthur says the false teachers had so totally lost moral control that they could not look at any woman without seeing her as a potential adulteress. They were uncontrollably driven by lust, never resting from their sins. And the opposite of this is what they are called to be, as what we are called to be. But what they're doing is certainly the opposite of Job. Job 31.1 I have made a covenant with my eyes, how then could I gaze at a virgin? That's Job's standards. That should be our standards, men. And they entice unstable souls. We transition in here from Peter's description of the false teachers to their influence on the teaching of others. This enticing it's trans translates a Greek word that has its root Roots in the words of, of hunting and fishing. It suggests a bait, a lure. James 1.14, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lusts. They're enticing others. They're unstable souls. Again, we get the help by the antonym. Peter urged in 2 Peter 1, verse 12, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. Rather than established, they are unstable. Moo writes, it's precisely those who fail to become solidly grounded in Christian truth whom false teachers find to be easy prey. Like trees with shallow roots, they are easily swayed and toppled. It is so important to know the word, beloved. 14 goes on to say, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. Trained, this Greek word is jajimmenin. I had practiced that. It doesn't show, but, but you can hear the root, can you not? That's where we get our word gymnasium is from this. They had disciplined their hearts to concentrate on the forbidden. Verse 15, they were forsaking the right way. They have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Loved wages of unrighteousness. 
We saw this up in verse 13, the wages of doing wrong. Now, why does Peter insert Balaam here from, you know, that's from Numbers 22, right? That seems odd for him to show up here. Well, you remember that, that Balaam was hired by the king of Moab, right? The Israelites were in the land, in the plain of Moab. The, the Moabites were terrified. And the king is looking for somebody to curse the Israelites. So he gets Balaam. Now we recall the story. And I'm going to shorten it for lack of time. But, but Balaam is stopped in his tracks, right, um, by an angel who he doesn't see, but his donkey sees. And then his donkey speaks to him, right? That's the story. Now, the connection is this, right? Like the false prophets that Peter is talking about, the prophet and the false teachers. Balaam loved money. And his prophetic ministry was motivated by money. Similar to the false teachers we have seen and are seeing. Thomas Schreiner writes, a soft life can only be pursued if one has the requisite finances. The false teachers, like Balaam, were unprincipled purveyors of teaching that would ensure their comfort and security. Verse 16, But Balaam received a rebuke for his own transgression, for a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. It's interesting that Peter elevates the donkey's understanding above that of Balaam. And in so doing, he's equating not the donkey, but Balaam with the unreasoning animals. We're going to look at the deception of false teachers, which is one of their characteristics. Again, looking not at the character so much, but the shift to the effect on others. Verse 17, these are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. This past week, we have been teased how many times by the promise of rain, right? My little weather app indicates it's supposed to rain at this time. Nothing, right? That's what the picture here. Imagine the heat of the Middle East, right? And you're traveling, you hope, and you believe there's a spring or a well to refresh you, and you find it to be dry. Peter is illustrating just how parched and thirsty for spiritual nourishment are those who are taught by false teachers. The promises are empty. We've even heard that people come to our church, right? Not necessarily under false teachers, though some have been, but maybe not even nourished well, but they just say, we were not being fed. Beloved, we are so privileged to be a Countryside Bible. We are fed well, and we know it. And we desire others to come. We know when many of us, nobody, well, let me, I'm starting to stutter. Slow down, Rod. But we all, not everybody is born and raised in a countryside, right? We've all come from various. The Lord's been so faithful, has he not, to continue to gravitate us and move us toward better 
and better teaching. We know what it's like to not be fed. That was free. The parallel in Jeremiah 2.13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. Verse 17 goes on to say, it's for, for these people for whom the black darkness has been reserved. ESV says the gloom of utter darkness. New Revised Standard, the deepest darkness. New King James, the blackness of darkness. Talking about hell itself. Verse 18, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. This is tied back to the, the, the black, black darkness. Another reason for their just punishment, they have expanded their evil by pulling in others. Recent believers to entice them by lies to renounce their devotion to Christ, to the gospel. Entice again, think of the fishing lure Verse 19, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Enticed to do what? Thomas Schreiner writes, the teachers probably lured recent converts by teaching that no judgment was forthcoming. We're going to see that in chapter 3. And if there is no judgment, it followed that morality was irrelevant. People could live however they wished since judgment is an illusion. The door was open to sexual sin at every level. You know, it's a similar argument that we see today in those who promote evolution. Right? If evolution is true, there is no God. If there is no God, there is no judgment. If there is no judgment, there's no need for any restraint. Their promise of freedom is highly ironic since these teachers were slaves of their corruption. By contrast, Peter called himself a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. We are all slaves to something. Either we're slaves to Christ or we're slaves to some sort of sin. Schreiner writes, Peter's meaning is clear. If people cannot overcome certain habits and sins, they are slaves to such things. How could the teachers proclaim a message of freedom when they were unable to extricate themselves from sin? Their lifestyle contradicted their message. Verse 20, For if... After they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. This is the warning. Having tasted truth and deciding it is not for us, 
is of grave consequence. Heaven and hell are at stake. Hebrews 6, 4, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and having tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. It's a taste, but not saving faith. Schreiner writes, The gospel they initially confessed, they had now repudiated. The Lord and Savior they had embraced, they have rejected. The world they had escaped, recaptured them afresh verse 21 for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them Schreiner writes why was the last state worse than the first it was worse because those who had experienced the Christian faith and then rejected it were unlikely to return again 22 it says it happened to them according to the true proverb a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire this proverb comes right out of proverbs 26 11. like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly shriner writes the point of the proverb is easy to see Dogs return to what is disgusting and unclean, sniffing even at their own vomit. Similarly, those who have renounced the Christian faith have returned to what is disgusting, finding it more attractive than the way of righteousness. And the origin of this second line is, is unknown, but Peter uses it, the illustration of the pigs. Basically saying, if you never cease being a pig, no matter how cleaned up you get, or may I add how much lipstick you put on it, it is still a pig and will reflect that it's still a pig. It illustrates that cleaning up one who is unregenerate, who truly does not repent and believe the gospel, is simply cleaning, getting clean for the moment before returning to the world. Now we're going to look at the outcome of false teachers. Back up at verse 3. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This is judgment personified. It's not idle. It's not sitting back with arms crossed, indifferent. It's not asleep. It has not lost awareness of the task in front of it. The destruction of these false teacher of these false teachers is as certain as three acts from the past. Verse four, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now, in our helicopter tour, we don't have the luxury to to unpack this very much. Also, of the three, this one's probably the more obscure, just who these angels are. MacArthur writes, 
These angels, according to Jude 6, did not keep their proper domain. They entered men who promiscuously cohabitated with women. Apparently, this is a reference to the fallen angels of Genesis 6. Now, though not all demons are bound, and demons are not bound, they are among us, we know that, but apparently these were committed to pits of darkness waiting for judgment. Now, a couple more familiar instances. Verse 5, And if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. Now, how did he rescue Lot? Genesis 19, verse 15. Recall, Lot is living in Sodom. When morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. So the men seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his two daughters for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside the city. Now that is a rescue. Now to be clear on what's happening, Lot is saved because he is righteous, not because he is perfect. He is righteous in that he believes the promises that God has promised and made. And as a righteous man, he was grieved by what he saw around him. Verse 8, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. We feel that. Do we not? James Moffat writes, Our great security against sin lies in our being shocked at it. But we can say our souls are tormented by what is going on around us, or we should. And if so, then I say rejoice and thank God. You're going, what? Because if in our current state of the church as a whole, it is common for the church to no longer be shocked. But continuing to be shocked and dismayed at the state of society is an indication that you are not being led away by false teaching. For that we can rejoice. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, if he rescued righteous Lot, verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation. A couple of meaning here of temptation. One is MacArthur. It can mean an attack with intent to destroy and refers to severe divine judgment. 
The pattern of the plan of God is to rescue the godly before his judgment falls on the wicked. And Schreiner writes, believers are encouraged with the grace of God. For if God strengthened Noah and Lot in situations where evil dominated, then he would also preserve the believers who were confronting the deception posed by false teachers. And the Lord knows this as well. And to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. One thing to be take away from these three illustrations is that judgment did not happen immediately. Thus the sin was allowed to continue for a time. The takeaway for Peter's readers and for us is to not be discouraged by any seeming delay by God or wonder about God's faithfulness just because false teachers seem to be prospering. Douglas Moo writes this, finding contemporary significance in 2 Peter 2, 4 through 10 is not difficult. For the situation addressed is all too similar to the position of the church in the world today. In 2.1, Peter reminds us that there will be false teachers among you. Everywhere we look, we find people advocating ideas that the Bible clearly condemns, yet claiming that they are the true way to find God. And these religious teachers are often successful, attracting large followings, making a good living for themselves, and garnering lots of publicity. It is this apparent, this apparent injustice that Peter is concerned about in this passage. How is it that God stands silent as such false teachers twist his truth and lead his people astray? Peter's answer is simple. God is not standing silent. Using the examples of the angels who sinned, the world of Noah's days, and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Peter argues that God is both judging sinners now and will finally condemn them in the future. The Lord knows how to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. A couple of points of, of application. Shows I can't spell. Best protection against being taken by the false is to know and embrace the true. It is why we do what we do at Countryside in our pulpits, in, in our lecterns on Sunday school. We must know the true to be avoid being taken by the false. Shows the importance of coming alongside new believers to protect them, to teach them, to encourage them so that they're deeply grounded in the truth, so that they're not tempted to follow the false it's also why children's ministry is so important to teach the kids truth deep truth so that they can be protected from the false partners is great too i love our partners ministry right i just love that our people are being fed and and 
shored up in the truth. Secondly, true believers can't apostatize, right? I mean, that, that, that talk about the elephant in the room, right? When you read a passage like this, you're going, what, what, about, what about believers, right? Can, can believers apostatize? Well, it's a mistake to think that they can. Peter does not contradict himself in his letter. Second Peter 1 3 says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Second Peter 1 10, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. It would make sense to be required to make certain about something if it could be lost. No, there's there's reasons to to know, right? If we are his, we are his. The 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 soils parable of the soils is helpful behold the sower went out to sow matthew 13 3 right some fell on the rocky places right and the the seeds it sprang up it looks good but it has no depth goes away was never was never the genuine some fell among the thorns they get choked out right they look good for a bit Go away. Others fell on good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. I would say, yes, church attenders can be lost, but not God's elect. If you are good soil, you will persevere. First John two nineteen, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so it would be shown that they are all not of us. Schreiner writes, in the final analysis, those who fell away never really changed their nature. Perseverance, therefore, is the test of authenticity. Now, we should come away from chapter 2 thankful for good teaching. Thankful we are shocked at the sins of the world and never taking our salvation for granted. It's our faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Our sins are imputed to Him, His righteousness placed on our account. But we can't be complacent Sinclair Ferguson there's no such thing in the New Testament as a believer whose perseverance is so guaranteed that he can afford to ignore the warning notes which are sounded so frequently so let us too take heed of the warning notes as we read this let us close our chapter 2 with the hope of chapter 1 verse 10 therefore brethren be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you 
for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Oh, Lord God, so gracious. Thank you, Father, for the security of the believers, the perseverance of the saints. Father, what you have begun, you will perfect. May we be diligent in our study of the word to continue to understand the true. May we continue to be grieved by the sin around us. And if grieved, may we rejoice, Father, that it's just an indication that that we're not being pulled away. Father, we thank you for sound teaching. We thank you for this church. Bless you for this church. And Father, we thank you for those that you have brought and are bringing to us. Father, we delight in being a place where people are fed, encouraged, solidified in their faith. May you be praised. In Christ's name, amen.